Uh, I'm Ed Nersessian. I'm director of the center. Uh, today's pay, uh, program is on shame. Before I introduce the participants, I should tell you that the next program in June is on status, status, and then in September we have a program on uh, roundtable on lying. And then we are working on other roundtables, including on uh, suicide. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I'm going to be very brief with the uh, introductions. Uh, the full bio biography of the, of the participants is on the website, but I have a printed version here that I can send around, and you can just uh, pass it around if you want. Uh, Joseph Adamson is Professor Emeritus of English from McMaster University. Richard Schweder is the Harold Higgins Swift Distinguished Service Professor, Department of Comparative Human Development, University of Chicago. Uh, Michael Lewis is the University Distinguished Professor of Pediatrics and Psychiatry, Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. Uh, the program was uh, suggested to me by Cathy uh, O'Neill, who is there, and she's a mathematician and founder of ORCAA. So, open for you to start. Well, thank you guys so much for coming. I, can everyone hear me? Um, I think it's very important to speak loudly and clearly. Um, and I'm going to be kind of like the dumbest person here because I am a mathematician and an author and a data scientist. I wrote a book about how data science is uh, fucking up democracy. Um, and then I decided to write another book um, about shame, and I have really no right to do so. Um, and I'm so grateful for these distinguished professors to come tell me what I've got it wrong about it. Um, so I was just hoping that we could start by talking about what we mean by shame, the definition. Um, and then I would, um, I would love to jump in and say all the uh, bad ideas I have about it so I could be corrected. Um, but uh, maybe we'll just start by, uh, if you guys are into it, talk about what we mean by shame. And for me, uh, it's probably the best to say that I think of shame as something I am rather than something I did. So it's not guilt. Guilt is something I feel bad about. I could apologize and it would be over, potentially. Shame is something that is like a sort of a deeper um, meaning about my worthiness. Am I worthy of something? Um, so for me, um, the, the sort of deep experience of shame um, probably came from my parents fat shaming me. Um, for years and years, I was told I was unattractive, would never get married, would never be um, worthy of attention from men. And um, that was sort of my first uh, sort of inhabiting of shame, which I think of, I sort of think of there as being a sort of four stages of shame. The first stage is just inhabiting shame, feeling ashamed on a daily basis. Um, not always terribly shamed, like sometimes worse than others, but you know, just sort of feeling, yes, I am unworthy. That is inhabiting shame, the first stage. The second stage happened when I was um, a teenager and I met people who didn't mind my body and thought actually I was, I was attractive. Um, and so I was sort of like a different context, a different group of people around me that didn't have the norm that I was unattractive. When I went back to my family and to my high school friends and they shamed me again for my, for my body, it provoked a different kind of experience for me, which I call outrage, outrage and denial. I was outraged by that. I was like, I don't deserve that. 
And yet it did feel make me feel ashamed. So it sort of both pushed me back into stage one and also gave me this new experience of stage two. And I'll just briefly say, my for, for me, the stage three, which I call facing the facts, is which came much later when I was an adult, when I had three children um, and I had all the sex I wanted from all the men I wanted. And I was like, wait, hold on a second. They actually were lying to me. It was wrong on its face. The facts were wrong. Um, so I, that's called stage three for me, like facing my personal facts, saying, wait a second, turn off the noise, turn off the Weight Watchers, the industry is trying to profit from me, the people trying to maintain power because I'm, they're attractive and I'm not. Ignore all that. What are my actual facts at hand? And that's what I call stage three, facing the facts. And then stage four for me is when I ultimately think, I'm, it's not about me anymore. It's about saying, what the, what the heck are we doing to people, to children? by shaming them for their bodies. That's when you sort of see it from the outside. And I'll stop there um, because I've already provoked. So I'm sure you guys have all said something. Yeah, go. Uh, can everyone hear me with this device on? Um, well, let me try a definition that I think overlaps with yours. And then I'd like to put out a proposition and give an illustration. Um, and I also think we're going to have to introduce different kinds of societies because your description of your experience and relationship to it I think comes from a particular kind of subculture in which creative individualism, liberation, and a big focus on self um, is privileged over a lot of other ways of thinking about society. I take it your parents were actually trying to instruct you in success and status and the norms of society when they were doing that. And the capacity to actually reject it, it seems to me a separate issue from an analysis of shame per se. I would say shame is something like the fear of being seen as defective by others. And it can take many variations, and what the defects are can vary. Um, I want to propose that shame and perhaps embarrassment are more powerful motivators of behavior than the fear of death. And the example I would give would be, let's say, you know, if you go back to 1889, there were the Zulu Wars in South Africa, and the British had machine guns and knew how to fire rifles. And they killed a lot of Zulus. But those Zulus who went on and fought them for six months would start with a group of five buddies in a village. They would create a bond between themselves. They actually would vomit into a pit, put the vomit, the collective vomit in a gourd, which each of them wore around their necks, and would run in beautiful coordinated ways into battle 15 miles away to sure death. They knew they were going to be killed. And the machine guns were there and mowed them down. Gallipoli is another example in which I think the fear of shame or not showing courage or not being there with your buddies is more powerful than the fear of death. There are lots of social situations, of course, in which shaming is extremely powerful. Lois Peak, who has studied preschools in Japan, for example, describes the classroom in a you know four and five year olds in Japan, the teacher walks in, the kids are sitting there and say, teacher, we are ready to learn mathematics. And the teacher could look around and say, but so-and-so doesn't have his book with him today. No one can learn mathematics today. And that night, the mother or parents of that kid who didn't bring his book are gonna hear from every other mother around and be powerfully shamed into making sure that they bring that book to school. And of course, 
this is one of the ways in which the social order is carried forward. People have a sense of shame. We don't want someone to be shameless. Okay? Um, in fact, in the community I work in in India, um, which is an Orthodox Hindu temple town, to be full of shame is to have propriety, to be civilized, to understand the rules. Um, it, it's an extremely powerful and positive kind of um, cultivation of self-restraint, for example, and an understanding of the status structures that are there and a willingness to play the part within this choreography of a hierarchical interrelated set of statuses. And um, you're going to hear about it if you start deviating from that. But anyway, that's my first pass. Uh, yeah, I w I'm very struck by what Kathy was saying because I'm working on uh, uh, the mill and the floss right now, George Eliot. And, uh, uh, there's a little girl, focus of the story, the novel, and uh, she's relentlessly shamed as a child because she's, her complexion is the wrong color, her hair is too dark, her personality is too big. I mean, she's, <clears throat> she has very intense uh, emotions um, and, and strong attachments. And so she's breaking all the norms in that society. To go back to what Richard Rick was saying. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it becomes very crushing for her. It's, it's, a, it's actually an amazing novel in terms of, of how shame works and uh, how destructive it can be, uh, although it can be a very positive affect too. It's a corrective. It can be a corrective in the right, right situation. Um, then her, her family has an economic uh, downfall, sort of social disgrace. Uh, so it's a kind of piling on of shame for her. She's, because she's a girl, she's restricted. So she's constantly being shamed just for, being, for, her, gen, for her gender. Um, uh, the novel ends very tragically because she finally experiences that kind of outrage you're talking about and acts on it impulsively and elopes with a young man who is, uh, uh, you know, she's from a lower class, she elopes with a higher class gentleman and uh, just basically the idea is she disgraces her family, uh, she's ostracized, she can find no way of getting out of this impasse in her society, and the novel ends quite tragically. But there are more positive versions of that story in Eliot too, where it is a, a, a motivator, a very strong motivator, for, for what Sylvan Tompkins calls, you know, restoring the good scene. I find his work quite interesting because he, he sees it as the least... Um, punishing of the negative affects as long as it's not magnified because it, it inherent in it is a desire to get back to those good feelings the, that the sort of positive feelings and the positive scene uh, so it can be a a, uh, a remarkable motivating force in, in in human life i think the real problem is when it becomes toxic when it's uh relentless and magnified when, when someone's growing up, then it becomes a, a problematic because it, you internalize it. And it's very difficult to 
um, break that internalization and to, to find a new way to be. So it struck me very much your, the story you were telling there. It's very much like, a, you might enjoy reading, I don't know if you've read it, Elliot, but. I have, yeah. Yes, it's yes. Great. You know what I'm, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, please. Well, uh, it's, uh, as uh, Yogi Berra said, it's a deja vu all over again. Um, uh, I was in this room perhaps 25 years ago, and the topic was shame. So um, uh, it's a persistent and an important topic. Well, because, as I mentioned earlier, I think we're becoming a massive shame culture, well, and that may be why it's back. Well, it's certainly the case. I had written a book uh, called Shame, the Exposed Self, which in the area of human development and psychology and emotion that I work in, it was uh, um, an, uh, both a synthesis and an attempt to produce a theory, a testable theory, because uh, um, uh, the coinage that uh, uh, gets you ahead in, uh, in my part of the world is you need to subject this to proof. It could be logical proof, but uh, uh, more an empirical. And it's a topic in emotional uh, development, uh, which interestingly enough, um, Darwin, I just wrote a chapter for someone on Darwin's uh, treatment of shame. Um, uh, uh, I knew Sylvan well, and we spent a year uh, having lunch together. Sylvan only ate two orders of coleslaw for the entire year. And I also tell you another thing about Sylvan. And uh, Damon Uranian, uh, the professor who goes to the horse races, is Sylvan Tompkins. Yeah. Uh, modeled yeah. after him. So Sylvan was a wonderful uh, a creature. He wrote uh, 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 two uh, of the most incomprehensible volumes that I've read, but it generated a lot of thought and interest. But I really think if we want to, from a historical point of view, we should go back to Darwin and read Darwin. Darwin came close. The major problem Darwin had is he could not create a theory of the mind, cognition. So even in emotion, he moved to the measurement of blushing, uh, which uh, he claimed was a good measure of it. <clears throat> Part of Darwin's problems, as we know, was uh, he had trouble with a gradualism. He had trouble going from animals, the primates, uh, to humans. And in fact, he toyed with, and it's uh, uh, in his time uh, was considered not inappropriate, but we do, both people of color and uh, people with an intellectual disability, he saw as a middle group between uh, great apes and humans. And he toyed with that idea about the emotions. His major problem was he couldn't distinguish between what he called and I call the self-conscious emotions, which we've touched on, which includes guilt, which includes embarrassment, 
which includes shame. Uh, and uh, if we like, we could also include the hubris, which turns out to be, uh, you know, in the English language, we have one word for pride, and that's pride goeth before the fall, which is a, a negative attribute, and proud uh, of one's accomplishments, which is consider a motivator and a positive. So we only have one word for it, so hubris is probably an attempt of mine to try to move us away to have two words for the pride we're talking about. <clears throat> it turns out that within the psychoanalytic tradition, the confusion between shame and guilt has been enormous, and it probably wasn't until the periods when I was writing and several uh, analysts were writing. Nathanson was a derivative uh, uh, thinker, but he clearly was uh, catching on to the idea that you had to make a distinction between them. In the meeting that I attended, uh, I sort of sat back, it's unusual for me, and, and uh, let the analyst talk about what they meant by shame and guilt. And of course, if we did this with what we mean by shame, we would come up with many definitions. So we know it's important, and we know Moreover, that there's, uh, we have to take culture into account. Um, Darwin had another idea, and he talked about things which he called action patterns. So I'm going to make a ridiculous proposal to suggest that we don't learn shame. Shame is an action pattern, and it's set off by the instigators are thoughts about the self. And thoughts about the self are called self-attribution, and that self-attributions of a certain kind are likely to lead to certain emotional states, motivators of action. And I think uh, uh, Rick picked up that uh, 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 the idea of shame as uh, an extremely negative emotion um, um, is questionable. Shame has clearly a very definite function. The, 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 uh, clearly one of the functions of shame is it stops you dead in your tracks. You suddenly became, suddenly developed a damaged self. And you have to do something about that. Guilt, on the other hand, does not lead to a damaged self that leads to reparation. And so if you wanted to measure it, and since I'm interested in how it starts, I look at children, I can measure what a child does when they fail at something. They know they failed. And there's some children who try to repair the failure. There's some children who collapse. And there's some children who, in fact, don't show any of these self negative, self-conscious like emotions. But I want to tell you of... Uh, so what uh, do you think the action pattern is, specifically? Okay, what is the action pattern? I would have said it's hiding. 
Well, uh, I think getting away from the public. I think you're absolutely, but it's stopping. And there, Sylvan had some idea. He called it interruption, mm -hmm. but it's not interruption. Interruption is the consequence mm -hmm. of the act. That's the consequence of the action pattern is to stop you. Hiding is another way. Is part of the stopping. So I would, I would certainly agree that hiding. We measure it by, in fact, the collapse of the body, which is an attempt to hide the self. The, the phenomenological experience is I want to die, hide, and disappear, or die. Uh, uh, so it is clearly a self-inhibit. Uh, uh, but let me give you this example, because one of the things that I've discovered in 60 years of studying this is uh, it's very, very tricky. And I've come to a much greater appreciation with uh, people trying to think about it in a more dynamic way. When you study it, you have to stop it and look what just happened. So let me give you a story that uh, uh, years ago a patient uh, told me. He was driving a car. It was at night. It was on a lonely road. Uh, it was raining and very hard to see anything. And as he's driving, uh, he hits uh, a dog, runs in front of him, and he hits that dog. He slams on the brake, and his first, first thoughts are, what a horrible person I am. I've just killed a dog. Now, he doesn't like to have that thought and the action pattern associated with it. So he says, uh, how do I get out of this? I mean, he doesn't say it literally, but very quickly he decides, one, he's not the cause of this mishap, this failure. Why? Because it's raining and it's dark, and moreover, the owner let the dog run wild. So all of a sudden, he starts off with this powerful, self-crunching uh, uh, action pattern. But uh, given the flexibility that we humans have, we can change our mind. We can, re we can reinterpret it. And indeed, what he does is he blames another. Now, the interesting thing, if it becomes a personality, namely one constantly in a situation in which the self might be injured, constantly reinterprets into other attributions. Essentially, it's either not my fault. By the way, males are much more likely to use it than females. Uh, and the attribution is, it's not my fault, I'm sorry, it's not my fault. Females tend to use the attribution, it is my fault, more. But the, the, uh, but the fact of the matter is that um, I think the example characterizes that uh, in front of us is what I call standards, rules, and goals. These are cultural events that are taught 
these have no, no unique content. However, when one, one has in, in the self-attribution the, the capacity to think about oneself, and that's a whole other story on the development of that, but having that capacity, you enter into a chain, a process, and depending on the outcome of that process, you end up with a kind of action pattern that I'm trying to describe. So, um, let me jump in. I think this is going to be one of several cases where we're going to have to be very clear about the boundary conditions we put about any generalizations we make. Because the mode of construal that you just described is not going to be readily available, for example, in that Hindu temple town where I've been working for several decades. Because there's not going to be the capacity to blame others or to see yourself as a victim. The reasoning is going to be you always reap what you sow in life. And anything that happens is a consequence of your prior actions. And you come into the world with spiritual debts and what you're doing constantly in life is trying to reduce the spiritual debts you have, because the more spiritual debts you have, the more likely you're going to be in the kind of circumstance you describe. The very fact that it was a rainy day and someone let their thing out happened to you. Why did that happen to me? It happened to me because of my past behavior and the spiritual debts that I bring in. And so you're constantly trying to reduce those spiritual debts through various means that are available to you. It could be living a righteous well, life, can I, could can be I... eating the correct food, but in any case, this whole mode of causal analysis sure. in which you say, I'm not responsible, is not going to be available as a construal. There's many, there are many right. problems right. with what I've said. One of them right. um, is a kind of a backward uh, backtracking. In cognitive science, uh, they've caught on to backtracking. For those of you who don't know it, years ago, people wanted to discover how come an animal eats something and 24 hours later mm -hmm. uh, gets sick from it and has learned not to eat that thing. And the argument is that we can move time, space in an interesting way, forwards and backwards. Our associative systems allow us to move backwards and forwards in time. So um, uh, it is absolutely the case. You, if we could talk about religions as well, one of the. Well, let's, let's, yeah. I just want to. I want to step up a little bit because, um, as a mathematician, I think very axiomatically, and I think we're we all are actually kind of agreeing. I'm, I want to go back to what you said. It's like there's a norm here, right? You shame someone with respect to a norm. I was shamed with respect to a body norm. What you're describing is when there is no other norm. Like, those people did not have access to a community where it was okay to be fat, right? You, it, it wasn't fatness. That, it was like this concept of a debt to the gods. That there, If they had, let me imagine uh, if some of them had gone on a, a sort of a study abroad program. Actually nature, actually, not the gods. Okay, say, the nature, whatever. Right, right. The, my right. point is that like, they were ensconced in this norm mm -hmm. group. So, of course, they're not going to see a different way of thinking about it. Um, and I just want to say, like, to another point you made, we are, or maybe you made, that we are living in a, in a shaming culture. So I'm just going to throw on another layer here. 
I also had another experience of shame when I worked in finance. I worked at a hedge fund during the crisis with Larry Summers. And I said, oh my God, we screwed up the world. I felt ashamed. I quit my job. I joined Occupy Wall Street. And I attempted to shame um, the government to, um, to improve financial regulation. And that was shame. I think shame is great. Shame is very, very useful. You were punching up. I was punching up. Punching up. So I like to think of shame in three categories. Punching up, punching down, and I think uh, shaming someone for their body, something that they can't control, is punching down. What about the usefulness for shame just for the person, independent of, because you're only talking about Mm -hmm. being shamed or shaming. Yes. But what just feeling of having shame or feeling shame? I mean, shame, as you, as you point out, it can be very useful for, for cohesion in a culture, right? We, I shame, for that matter, I shame my children when they don't do their chores, right? It's a, it's a, it's a lubrication uh, to get people to follow the rules without having to um, re- exp- explain the rules every single time and actually have to administer punishment when they don't. Let me just finish my framework, and then I'll let you guys respond. I think there's a third type of shame that's getting more and more prevalent in this culture. There's punching up shame, there's punching down shame. The third type I call punching nowhere shame. And punching nowhere shame is when we try to, we sort of performatively shame people that will not care. And what I'm thinking here, emblematic example, is when people on the left, because I'm on the left, so I, on, when I go to Twitter, I'm, on the, I'm seeing my lefty friends, they're retweeting um, Trump or Trump's son and saying, and, and sort of saying something to him in their retweet to sort of try to shame Trump. It's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. Like, do you think they are going to care what you're saying? But it's definitely an attempt to shame. It's a failed attempt to shame. It's a performative thing. And my question is, what is the end result of that? And my feeling is it's not just a waste of time. It's actually a problem. And I think the anti-vaxxing movement is a largely a product of that. And I think the incels, which are the young, mostly white men who are misogynistic online, talking to each other about how terrible women are and actually going out sometimes and, and killing people, mm-hmm. killing women, mm-hmm. um, is a very direct reaction to this shaming, performative shaming, punching nowhere culture. People call this virtue signaling also, right? Virtue, it's, it's, that's what I mean by performance. I'm yeah. performing righteousness by right. shaming Don Jr. Right. Everyone retweet me. Right. But, you know, it doesn't actually, in, number one, it doesn't shame him. And well, number two, it just means. makes the other people more dehumanized. It dehumanizes right. them. It, it sort of focuses on us versus them. Right. Well, yeah. there's a sense in which, you know, I mean, I think there's a certain picture of shame as oppressive, which comes from people who don't like living in closed communities where there are these norms that everyone shares, and they feel oppressed by it, and they want out. It's sort of the creative individual who is willing to be transgressive with regard to the norms, and they go to New York City, okay, rather than live in the small community. Now it seems to me what's happened, however, is that the surveillance that goes on in small communities, which produces shaming of all kinds, often to maintain social order, and often quite effectively, has now returned in the form of Twitter. It's now reformed in the terms of newspapers that are constantly looking to invade and get information 
that people think is private. And if they can expose it, it becomes now the equivalent on a much larger scale of these small communities. And ironically, that's what we're doing. The technologies have broken down the private-public distinction. The idea that you could find an area where you couldn't be shamed because you could draw the shade, you could close the door. It was in a private realm where you could be experimental with transgressive behavior and leave it there is no longer possible. And that reaches the, essentially, we found a way to have a technology that turns us into a small community again with all of these kinds of attempts you're describing we to can, humiliate people. We can do a taxonomy right. of shame, but uh, anything can shame you if you have a standard, a rule, a goal, and you don't. Uh, these are cultural, determined, although there was some argument historically that uh, shame or sham, the German for back or backside, was in fact in the early attempts at trying to address it, was around toilet training, and shame was there. Um, having lived a, a long life, uh, when I was uh, six or seven, I needed glasses. And um, uh, it was shameful to wear glasses. Uh, you were called four eyes. Now we're not ashamed of wearing glasses. Uh, um, there's a, as you age, there's a hearing loss, okay? Uh, and uh, I wear hearing aids. And hearing aids are designed, the technology, mostly that they should be hidden because uh, uh, um, wearing hearing aids is shameful. So we can change uh, readily what, what is or isn't shameful. The idea, if, to be helpful, is there has to be some cultural standard or rule. Now, interestingly enough, to, uh, you could have a rule to be shameful. That is, it's good to be shameful. And so, you could find many things uh, you might need to sweep away because you would step or you can't eat a plant that's a root because there might be insects and destroy. So, um, I don't know how useful it is. I think it is useful if we want to go contemporary to look at what's happening in not only our culture but everywhere. To begin with, when I got a bad grade as the son of parents born in Europe, turn of the century, but nonetheless, uh, I was ashamed for their shame that I didn't get a good grade. I was not only ashamed for myself, I was ashamed that my parents' shame. Well, that doesn't seem much to be the, as, as much the case anymore. But it seems to me that uh, we need to um, um, not talk about the different kinds. Let me just tell you what the observation in these meta-analyses are. One, uh, amount of narcissistic behavior has enormously increased. Any scale or the various scales that supposedly measure it show an increase in this country. Two, an increase in perfectionism. That is, 
uh, uh, being overwhelmed by uh, 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 the concern for uh, uh, making an error. Uh, uh, three, um, uh, decrease in empathy. Uh, all of these are, um, uh, and uh, an emphasis, uh, um, I think these things come about, and Rick has hinted at it, they come, they, uh, these things come about because the self has become an increasing object to the self, so that um, selfies, uh, uh, tattoos, um, uh, communication, yeah, it's a common knowledge, especially in, uh, in the age group in this room, that you watch a couple sitting, each taking a picture of their dish, sending it to other people. Um, uh, um, th these are very technologically advanced, very complex behavior. Hypothesis, the more you pay attention to yourself, the more trouble you ultimately get in. It's a pretty safe hypothesis. A baseball slump occurs because you start to think that you are in a slump, and thus the kind of physical timing that you need to hit a ball, a swing at something before, as it's leaving the, the hand of the pitcher, uh, gets disrupted. I have the problem when I have to shift. Too self-conscious. Yes. Basically. Well, yeah. I think well, the quote I'm, is, "If you think, you stink." That's right. <laughs> yeah. So fundamentally, in baseball, uh, on a on a on a, on a uh, steep hill, when I'm driving a shift, which I learned to drove most of my life, uh, as in you know in Berkeley on on Cedar uh, Avenue, uh, which has some steep hills that. Uh, and now you have to put it in neutral, and there's a car behind you, and you've got to shift into first and very steep, and if you start to think about, I may have trouble shifting, you're going to have trouble shifting. The whole uh, point in motor action is to get it out of the operating system because there are better things in your head to be doing with. The point is, if in fact it is the case that we have become more self-involved as a way to be happy, I don't know what the goals are, that fundamentally you would get an increase in shame because you're paying attention to yourself and therefore, you would need mechanisms to get away from it, which is narcissism, a very powerful mechanism. It's not my fault, or I didn't make a mistake. It's a defensive mechanism, in other words. Well, they're yes. essentially, yes, they're defensive mechanisms for the increase. So the decrease in empathy is, it's their fault. They're poor, it's their fault to be poor. Uh, are they, a car hit them, they shouldn't have well, been Well, the shamer in chief in the country right yes. now. That's what he so, says all the time. Well, Kathy, you are... I'm sorry, I disagree. You I disagree. it wrong like Darwin thought that like getting a red in the face was meant you were shame. It, that's too easy. It's not about selfies. Like, selfies is narcissistic, I just, obviously. It's vain, obviously. <laughs> I think people who do that are more vulnerable. They're more vulnerable Tell to shame. People who take selfies, like just define it that way. <laughs> they are more vulnerable to shame, but I think the worst aspect 
of modern social media is, are not the selfies. They're just annoying. The worst aspect are the self-righteous shamers who are dehumanizing others and who are working actively to decrease our empathy. I think the empathy is the key. We are decreasing our empathy to people we don't agree with. We were like, if you think that, you must be a monster. And honestly, we, we say that about people with whom we agree 85% of the time, but we found the 15%, social media helped us find it, the 15% where we disagree and we're like, oh my God, I thought I liked you, but you're a monster, I, now I know. That's the kind of performative self-righteous shaming that is a problem. Selfies is a small thing. It's an interesting difference between shame and guilt in this sense because you do need the cooperation of the other person to feel guilty. If you try to, you might shame them and hope they feel guilty about something they've done. But to simply shame, you just need to leave a mark. It doesn't need to be reciprocated. I mean, you could, why, anyway. Why do you think you need the cooperation of the other? I would have thought that guilt could be just between you and your ego ideal, and if you don't live No, I mean, to, if you're. You need the other to confess if that's the way in which you're going to unload your guilt. But if you're posting online mm -hmm. and you want to leave a shame mark on right, someone, right. you don't need them to reciprocate. That's why it goes on, and it goes on despite its futility. And what do you think the right. response is when, you, when you're the receiver of that? If you know that you've 85% agree with the person and they're well, accusing I, I you of being a monster. I personally feel terrible that happens, but I'm afraid you feel terrible, other people but, don't but feel terrible. But what else would you feel? You'd feel angry. Mm -hmm. yeah. You'd feel okay. outraged. Yeah. And you would say, no, you're the monster. And yeah. that's the point. It's, it becomes yeah. a, a feedback loop, a dynamical system where... I, you, I guess I was getting at the idea that it doesn't require as much empathy or back and forth for you to simply leave a mark that intends the shame versus to engage someone and, to, and make them feel remorseful. It becomes infantile, right? It's like, I know, I know you are, but what am I? That thing, right? Yes. At that level. I'd like to pick up something you, Michael, just said, because I do have this sense that there are certain prepotent areas that it's easier to shame than other areas, that it's just any arbitrary rule. Um, and I'll get to this this way. If you look at the explanations of illness around the world as an anthropologist, why people think they're suffering, there are very, there's a big three. The most frequent thing people do is point to interpersonal influences on themselves, like witchcraft, evil eye, sorcery, something's big, friends and neighbors who envy me, who are making me feel sick. And then there end up being moral explanations in which they blame themselves for their suffering, and they think they've transgressed in some way. And then there are, of course, biochemical explanations, which it turns out are not the most frequent on a worldwide scale. Um, the other two are, and interpersonal are far and away the most common. But in the moral domain, when you look at what transgressions lead people to think, I did that and that's why I'm suffering right now, yes. there's a small number and they end up being sexual, food, and authority <laughs> relationships. So if you kick your father and six months later you go blind, you're not going to fail to wonder whether you're blind because you kicked your father. There's something about those areas of experience in life that somehow are prepotent. And I wouldn't be surprised shaming could work that way. I too. think it's a perfectly reasonable right. uh, hypothesis indeed, right. that there may be uh, prepotent, that is, <clears throat> failures or evaluations of one's behavior vis-a-vis -vis some kind of standards, unique ones, mm -hmm. may be prepotent, right. uh, in fact. Uh, and, and, and there would be good reason to suggest that 
these should be very important and frequent enough events so that you protect against uh, 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 violating the rules because uh, it really is going to hurt you. One of the problems is now we're going to introduce embarrassment. Uh, let me say a word about it. If I sat down with anyone in this room and said, tell me about things that embarrass you, you would, if you knew me for a while, you would tell me about embarrassing things. If I said, tell me about the things that shame you, you don't. And so it's been said that shame gets you into therapy, but prevents you from getting better. Isn't embarrassment just a less intense form of shame? Well, no, that there's two kinds of embarrassment. There's embarrassment of being the object of others' attention. Darwin talked about it, and it is certainly the case. I could show you, if, for example, we, the group around the table, decided we would all simply point at another person in unison. For no reason, we randomly selected it. That person being pointed to would get embarrassing. For example, when you're introduced and the introducer says very nice things about you, you certainly enjoy it, but you are certainly embarrassed. Now, you could argue you should be embarrassed, but I can show you in 18-month-olds to 24-month-olds when this embarrassment comes in, children play a game of pointing to each other and they tend to embarrass. The object of attention turns out to be a very early form of embarrassment. It also starts to involve body because the early forms is me here. So if you point to a child at 20 months who recognizes itself in a mirror by touching its nose, and you point to it, the child will show you embarrassment. Mm -hmm. If you ask children, how many of you have children, grandchildren, and, you, uh, and uh, the parent says, uh, show grandfather or grandmother uh, the, the new thing you do, and the child shows embarrassment. Why isn't that just shame, a mild form of shame? Well, because it, it seems by the reporter not to be shameful. People have trouble interpreting this because it also turns out to be an individual difference. Shy people are in fact those people who over-respond to being the when very young, the object of others' attention. So there is, seems to be a distribution in the population of people who, when they're the object of attention, uh, uh, show embarrassment. But isn't it fair to think that people have different thresholds for shame, lower, higher? Yes. Uh, so they're wired. Adds, they're wired that way. It's an. It's we're wired that way, right? Yeah, and Some, so there must be a usefulness to shame. In most of the conversation has been shame about shame yeah, as a problem useful. that you can shame. You gave the example of your school; they shamed you, and you felt ashamed about your parents. But there must be some reason why we have this emotion of shame. It's, a, it's a very important socially, for one thing. Right. You know, but, if you if, if you do something, are... let's say you're at a dinner party, and uh, <clears throat> you your host is going on, 
this won't happen tonight, but <laughs> and <clears throat> you're irritated about something, maybe not even something to do with him, and you 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 lose it, you you lose your temper, right? And uh, you you insult you insult him <laughs> exactly, and and you rain, right? Now, uh, you know. You know, I think a lot of us have done something like that, and you feel terrible, right? The feeling is, is you, you just feel like you're, like there's a sort of sickness sinking, right? You, you just feel so ashamed of what you've done. Uh, because you have shamed him. Well, I think more you've, yeah, but more you've, you've acted in an entirely inappropriate way. It draws attention to yourself, and and you there, and so you, you, I, you know, we've all done this. I've done it. You know, you go away, you feel terrible. The next day, you go over, and you want to make it right. I think this is what Tompkins is talking about when he says that shame, inherent in shame, is a desire to restore the positive feeling, right? To restore what he calls the good seed, and you apologize, mm -hmm. and you say, "I don't," you know, "I, I." You know, I behaved so inappropriately. I'm very sorry. You know, uh, so and, look at the way. And so that's that's a, that's highly functional because it 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 uh, it's it's a highly. Well, it would be more functional if it prevented you from doing what you did. Well, it often does, right? I mean, it often prevents you from it. It, you know, let's say the person is, and they correct themselves before they do it. Right? They control themselves. Is a very important mechanism to reduce shame. Confession. You say, just as you indicated, mm -hmm. I am sorry I did that. Mm -hmm. Forgive me. So clearly there are mechanisms uh, uh, to reduce it. One of them is displacement, to blame the other and become angry. Uh, another is to internalize it and move toward depression. I am a worthless creature now and in the future. And, and the other one is to make fun of yourself, interestingly enough, mm -hmm. especially in embarrassment. But Michael, what would you make of socialization techniques designed in some subcultures to induce it? So for example, Heidi Fung has done observations of children and families in Taipei, in Taiwan. Uh -huh. And the mother, when she's around other associates or relatives or friends, will bring in her young child who has transgressed in some way, like you were describing, and has them narrate their transgression. <laughs> Tell them how bad you were. And it's not a confession. It's not really there to um, get rid of some feeling. It's there to recapitulate it and to have this child essentially cultivate a sense of shame by inducing it in a very public way Presumably, that's going to be relatively effective in, well, it, in, in it having it all, not happen. Can I just something about that? And, and, and when she shows the videotapes at an American Psychological Association meeting, everyone views it as child abuse, and she has to stop showing it because it provokes such a discussion. So public and, shaming was a thing right? in this country. Um, there was a book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed, written by John Ronson recently. Um, or maybe Ron Johnson, I can't remember how he says his name. Um, and he did, he did a study about this, a sort of, uh, you know, New England uh, 
uh, early America, uh, sort of scarlet letter type stuff. And he researched sort of the history of it. And it stopped eventually, not because it became less useful, but because it was so harsh. Like the the public view, the the people who came to see the public shaming were so into it that it was embarrassing to the authorities. That's why they stopped doing it, not because it didn't work. So I have a mini example of this. The, I, I lived with a six-year-old daughter and 10-year-old son in rural India for a year, and they went to a local convent school. And one day, my son said to my wife, I, I don't want to go to school today. And she explored it. Why didn't he want to go to school today? Because he had seen when you didn't do well on a math exam in that school, they pinned it to your back and you wore it all day long around the school. That was their technique for public shaming, which, you know, it's a complicated thing. You know, we can view that as harsh. He obviously was, we come from a subculture where we weren't going to let that happen. Nevertheless, internally, I'll bet those kids are all over the world doing really good math now. Um, Susan Miller has several books uh, that are 25 years old that documents uh, very clearly uh, 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 um, uh, uh, spare the rods, uh, spare the rods, spoil the child. Uh, uh, fundamentally, the theme to teach moral behavior, you teach you will forgive me, that you were born in sin, mm-hmm. okay? And that, so we have in, 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 in Christianity the belief you are born in sin. Hinduism uh, 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 has that too, it's a different form, but you well, come yeah. into the world with a long history of transgressions mm-hmm. and prior lives. Yeah, so, like, you know, you're not, you're not exactly. an innocent blank so, slave. Uh, there will be, <clears throat> there are techniques mm-hmm. which, for the most part, uh, we've given up as publicly acceptable, but in fact are employed. How many parents, if you watch them with their children and the child does something, switches up their nose, for those of you who can see my face, which is a, a semi-disgust face, uh, disgust face and, face and says, you, that's disgusting, you're disgusting. Mm-hmm. Disgust is a very, very, powerful, shameless So we were talking about, and I wanted to hear you tie together what you believe is the connection between embarrassment and shame. Before you do, I just want to add this uh, extra ingredient, which is these do all have biological rudiments, like disgust expression, the early stages at which embarrassment can be elicited in children, etc., suggest to me that these potential, I would say, components of shame start even on a very biological basis, before they're co-opted by society and form shame. John studied divorce in, and couples in trouble uh, has pointed out that when one member of the couple uh, exhibits a shame face toward the other for some action or some statement, the consequence of that is either the one receiving the disgust face shows a depressive reaction, or in fact, gets angry back. You know, how dare you shame me? Yeah. So uh, uh, clearly, um, we're gonna have to worry about shame publicly, 
but also shame privately. But there's a shame, embarrassment between saying to a child, that's disgusting, and that's, you know, that, that, that's shameful, or shaming the child. I think there's a, a significant difference between the two. Uh, well, okay. You no, find, don't you think? Find, I mean, we have, we have shame would say it's a fear of being perceived as disgusting. That's actually well, that would be. Well, it depends on. It's I would broken. say if, if right. you say Certainly. don't eat that, that's disgusting. That's different from you're disgusting. Yeah, because you ate that. Three, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a question of whether you. If you say are, you should be ashamed of yourself, it doesn't seem to me to be as toxic yeah. as saying that you're disgusting. Mm-hmm. You're a disgusting person. Because a disgusting that's very rejecting. Yes. Right? That's like, that's very distancing. It's where in shame, there's always a bridge back. Right? But how it's heard may, defend, may depend on the child, too, to a degree. Look, right. I would like to add something a bit different. I would like to add something a bit different because it is, from everything you are saying, the implication is that you become frequently ashamed because you have been shamed often growing up. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily, I, I, I don't think it's the experience of psychoanalysts in general, it's certainly not my experience. Mm-hmm. Some people have more shame, some people have less shame, and it's not based on to what degree their parents or their teachers mm-hmm. or the school shame them. Well, It, it seems to do, and the psychoanalytic idea that it has a lot more to do. Sorry? And you become victimized if you are repeatedly shamed. And becoming victimized means you become the victim. And so the report was that I really was sh- shameful, not that my parent necessarily did that to me. Uh, 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 indeed, uh, what one would like to see if we could do such an experiment is to see in a high shaming family, uh, what does the child do when the child finally becomes in charge and the parents are now old. Uh, we don't talk about uh, old people being abused, but uh, uh, a sweet revenge uh, to a lifetime of being, uh, of, of being shamed. So, uh, I wanted to get back to Kathy's observation about the historical change that took place, let's say from the Massachusetts Bay Colony or 17th century Puritanism and its morality. Because I do think, in some sense, the cyber stocks are back right now, and we're very much like that period once again, given the technologies that we have. But I do feel that it's important to think about societies that liberate individuals from communal ethics of community-type structures. And when that happens, I think they begin to see those techniques as harsh, even though they were effective. But here's a triad that, uh, think about the following three emotions. Happiness, shame, and anger. And if I ask you, which is most different from the other two? Happiness, shame, anger. Which is the odd one out? If I do that in a University of Chicago class, the response is either going to be happiness is the odd one out, is most different, or some people will say shame is the, is, 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 uh, the odd one out. And it's largely based on a hedonic view of the emotions. Does it feel good or doesn't it? Feels good. They think it's... You know, or you're full, it feels good to be happy, okay? It doesn't feel good to be shamed or, or to be angry. Well, let, let, me, let me finish. Let me finish. And, and it, some people say shame because they think that means the ego has been diminished, whereas if you're happy and angry, you're full of yourself. 
If I do this in the Indian community I work in, the overwhelming response is anger is the most different from the other two, mm -hmm. which is a very rare response in our subculture. And for them, shame and happiness are the glue of social relationships, and anger is destructive of social relationships. And that's a totally different way of viewing it, and I think it has correlates in the way in which their societies is organized, on the degree to which individualism versus some form of collectivism is a part of the organization of social life. Um, and that puts boundaries on a lot of the generalizations we make about whether something's useful or not, what our own evaluative reactions are to it, and so forth. Let, let, let's come back to, um, let's broaden it if we can, to bring in the other kinds of self-conscious emotions which you were, you were starting to do, such as, I have claimed that there are two kinds of embarrassment. One is a very basic early, does not require elaborate cognition, the child shows it soon after it starts using personal pronouns like me and mine. And that is an, uh, an individual difference in their reaction to being the object of attention. That's easy to do in a laboratory setting. You bring the kid in and you ask the, and you start complimenting the child on how pretty they look or how handsomely the look or whatever. You ask the child to do things like dance to a banging a tamarind. And what you see in the children being the object of attention, they show embarrassment. About a year and a half later, when you now start to incorporate the standards, the rules, of, the goals of your family and the society at large, you now have another embarrassment, which is embarrassment against some kinds of standard. We, that starts to move us toward shame. But I, I, I put to you, at least in this culture, where we have two words, if I ask you to tell me something that embarrasses you, you would have more readily willing to do it than if I asked you about something that shamed you. Uh, and but isn't that again just intensity? We also have the word humiliation, which is a very intense form of shame, right? right? Well, or mortification, which, as you, you, I think you mentioned earlier, you, you're dying of shame. Right. Um, I mean, I think people experience embarrassment of some kind or another every day in a, in a mild form, right? Sure, and, but there are certain things that really define you. Okay, so if someone says, Michael, your, your parallel parking is really atrocious, uh, I may not like it, I may feel, yeah, you're right, I, I'm going backwards has become more difficult as I've aged, ah, fine. Except on the steep But if they said, gee, that's, your last book is absolutely horrible. <laughs> uh, uh, it was a list of wang, obviously, than the, yeah, than the going backwards. Exactly. But it would certainly elicit more embarrassment, shame, uh, uh, with a bad review. So clearly, there are different aspects of ourselves which are more important. I'm going to, if you guys don't mind, layer on one more layer to this conversation, um, which I'm fascinated thinking about. Because I, we've talked a lot about the individual experience of shame. You've talked a little bit about norms within a culture and how that 
changes it. I want to talk about group shame. Group shame, and I'll, I'll just throw out an example. The Catholic Church. Mm. Um, you know, remember I talked about the phases of shame. There's sitting in the shame. There's outrage and denial of the shame. Then there's facing the facts. And then they're saying, stepping outside and saying, this is, this is what happens. You know, I'm just going to throw that out. Po- the Pope came, came out and he started talking about, oh, you know, sexual abuse of children is a terrible thing. It's really terrible. Isn't it terrible? He didn't actually say, this is what happened in the church. This is what we're going to do about it. He never really cleaned house. He never really went through th- stage three. He kind of jumped to... Stage four, like, you can all forgive me. This is a, a, an apology, quote, unquote. Uh, of course, I'm putting my take on it. But my point is that I want to talk about how groups inhabit shame, how they get outraged by accusations, how, and how they come to tr- see the truth, see, face their own facts, clean their own house. How do they, how do they navigate shame? As groups. Well, did they navigate shame? It was only when we told them you should have felt shame about this, then they thought, oh, yes, we did something shameful well, and possibly didn't. Group, see, I yeah. mean, individual, let me give you another example. There's a very widespread habit in this country of shaming children when they don't have enough school lunch money. And what will happen is that the children will either not be fed, they will just be not fed at school, or their lunch will be thrown away in front of them. And they sometimes even get branded on their arm. I don't have enough lunch money. The individuals who work at the lunchrooms sometimes refuse to do this policy, um, and they get fired. So I'm I'm not claiming that. Um, you know, I, I think of that as a sort of a sort of systemic shame, if you will. Mm-hmm. It is created as a policy, and it is perpetrated by groups. Not every single individual in the group has to agree with it as a policy because they might actually find it too shaming. And for that matter, I mean, obviously lots of priests were doing terrible things, but not every priest thought that was a good idea. Like we can't assume that it was like a a unified attempt, right? But it, it, at the same time, it is a group thing. It is a, it's sort of a group navigation of, led by the Pope, perhaps. But like, what is happening there? And when are we going to actually see them get to stage three, cleaning house, tell us what the consequences are, cleaning up their act? Isn't it the same process as for an individual? That's what I'm that, I my think point, it is. Yes. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, and you know, the, the thing about it, that is it's good news and bad news. It's good news because we kind of understand it. It's bad news because, well, I feel like I'm in stage four with gay bashing or fat shaming or race shaming. But I, I, can't, I can't be in charge of everyone. Like, how do we get the rest of, you know, how do we pull people in this direction? Imply you're moving toward mm-hmm. something. Yeah. What are you moving toward? An understanding. Understanding of what? Well, see, the examples I just gave are all in the first category. No, you, you were talking about stages. Yeah. What? Tell me about stages, because I don't know what that means. Right. Stages reflect a, uh, a sequence. Yes. Where either uh, a combination of biology and culture, or or culture or biology. So, uh, are you talking about a um, a level of no shame? I don't think so. But maybe you are. What? 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 What, what should progress amount to? And what is progress? Right. I have a whole chapter in the right. shame book right. on this problem of progress. What is? What is progress? 
from what is progress. So what, what is the ideal? Let me put it this way. Tell me, from your perspective, what the ideal society would be. Would there be shame in it? There would not be punching down shame. So I was going to say that the examples I gave, sexual abuse, shaming people for being poor, shaming children for being not having school lunch money, um, gay bashing, those examples are examples of punching down shame, which I claim exists quite a lot. There's a lot of power being maintained around punching down shame. There's a lot of profit being made from punching down shame. And it is, I would call it, invalid shame. And the idea of progress would be to get past it. And that would require so that people when, who are shamed by they, it say, no, no, it's not acceptable. When would be okay to be shamed? When you do those things. Well, when... If well, you did those things that people are doing, this punch down I shame. characterize punching down shame as when you are well, shaming someone either who has no choice, who has either no choice or no voice. So they either have no choice to conform to the norm or they have no power to explain themselves. So how's the lunch money thing work? I don't quite have a picture of that as a yeah. shaming device. I've never heard of that. Yeah. You've so, never heard of that? No. It happens in more than half the school districts in this country. Really? Yeah, no, but what, what I mean, what, why is it shaming? What is it, what form does it take? What's said? What? You are refused, you're not given food. Okay, that's the number one. You're not given food. You're deprived of food. You're considered, you're basically labeled as unworthy of food. It is the most basic form of shaming. And they are branded, and you are, it's public. It is like, hey, your parents didn't pay for food. You're not going to get food. Everybody knows it in the school lunch. Even if they can't afford to give the money. Of course, they, it's their children. I mean, just to be clear, this is children. Uh -huh. It's their parents that are supposed to pay. So they have no power. Yes, right. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. I would love to know a source for half the school systems. In the okay, I'll give it to you. Yeah. Wait, I would, I would be really well, like, that's hard to believe. It but is hard to believe. I, it's I, outrageous, I, actually. I, uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, Optimist. The terrible behavior <laughs> that people are capable of perpetuating is, uh, does, is not surprising. Uh, so whether we want to call it up or down uh, punching, uh, which is fine, it's a, uh, you know, a way of uh, a taxonomy. Uh, you're applying there's a, a good shame or a bad shame. If my child uh, comes back with uh, uh, a paper or something they've done and they've not done well, uh, uh, what are you going to tell parents or the tiger moms, as they're called, uh, uh, you shouldn't be doing that. Well, I mean, um, I, how can we disagree with people doing these things to children? I mean, this can't be any. There argument. are laws against child abuse, so I think we can disagree about but certain uh, things. Tell me uh, specifically about shame. Yeah. You mentioned that uh, you were fat shamed. Yeah. Does that mean that you? are more prone to shame as a result of that, or does that mean that you are no more prone to shame than anybody else? In other words, is the implication that that kind of shaming leaves rather serious marks on the person that is indelible, or is it that some people react one way, some people kids react one way, some kids react the other way, and some grow up, without much 
shaming by anybody and they have more proneness to shame and some don't? That's a good question. I mean, my parents shamed me, I think, because they were fat. So they were sort of propagating a certain of kind of type of shame onto me. I have not done that to my children, but that's because I've thought a lot about it. You know, like I went through these stages I'm trying to describe. I, um, that's one of the reasons I came up with this taxonomy of shame is to understand when is it unfair? When is it possible well, to pass through it? Are you yourself more prone to shame than, let's say, your husband or your kids? I think I'm more, more aware kids. of my shame. More aware, but not more, more prone. In other words, you don't more easily than somebody else. What do you think the connection? I would like to hear what, instead of, a, I'm going to I don't know. back to you. I know, I'm, I'm only asking because it seems to me, from my perspective and my, my experience, uh, the, the kind of outside shaming is not what often or necessarily leads to a proneness to shame later, but rather certain developments in the, in the strength of the person's self, in their self-esteem, mm -hmm. in their view of themselves, is what contributes to how they feel later. Interesting. Let me support that. It's a, uh, in another life, uh, I work in, uh, uh, in pediatrics, and we've been doing a study of the fellows. Uh, we have a fellowship program, and, and I'm in charge of the research. And there is a fellow who is studying the siblings of children who have ASD, who are autistic, on the spectrum. And the idea being, what does a sibling feel about having a sibling who is mm -hmm. demonstrably different? And uh, the interesting finding so far is that there are a good number of the people who end up taking care of handicapped kids or kids with disabilities uh, are in fact from families uh, from which they had a close member mm -hmm. as well as just the opposite mm -hmm. so that indeed supporting what you're saying Ed, that in fact uh, an experience can have very different consequences. One is a social good. There are people committed to working with these children who, until now, we don't have much you know, resource to improve, but they're working with them, versus those who probably develop, uh, I did it, and if you don't do it, you're yeah, yeah. Do you view this as temperamental difference, or do you view it as uh, people are born with different? Some people are more resilient. I think they're born that way, right? Yeah. Other people are more fragile. But I, I, you know, after spending forty years at a medical school, uh, my uh, uh, my. Uh, uh, thoughts about the biology uh, of our bodies. Of that. You know, we're not all the same. No. Temperament, however we may conceive of it, there are different things. My, my, I had, my son and daughter are 50-year-olds, but when they were babies, and I would, you know, toss them, I mean, I never threw them in the air, but, you know, just the, the, the girl baby, the younger, she loved it, and, and, and uh, she loves the rough and tumble. She goes in shark cages and uh, in cages protecting you from shark. My son, who was in terror of it, uh, in fact, uh, 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 
Um, Supplemental so, issue is interesting, but I, I want to try to get my mind around your question about groups yeah. and how do they react. And I want to, I guess I need some clarification because when you say how does a group deal with its own shame, yes. do you mean they have in fact done something which everyone would agree is shameful or do you mean they have been shamed by some powerful group telling them that do what they're doing is shameful. Mm. So, for example, we have many examples in colonial domination situations. Let's say you believe the West is best and its view of gender relations, its view of X, Y, Z is closer to the truth than those primitives or backward peoples of the world. And you start going in, dominating those groups and telling them that what they're doing with regard to gender relations, how they raise their children, all this is shameful. Now, is that the kind of question we're dealing with? How do those groups then react? Because we know that some groups identify with the colonials and quickly become colonialized. We know other groups have rebellions against it and have all sorts of resistance. Um, we have revival movements that go on. But these are power dynamics that are very different from the way you framed it. You framed it with examples mm -hmm. in which you're inviting us all to agree that's shameful what they did. Mm -hmm. Not that some group is shaming another group from its power position, and those are very different situations. And um, I'm just wondering what, what you And after you mind. answer, we will go to questions. Right. Okay, great. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a great question. And I, I wanna, I'm not sure I was scrupulously careful about the examples, but I, what I really want to focus on is changing norms, probably is the best way of saying it. And maybe the, a good example in, in that context is the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. So the Me Too movement is a movement because we are changing our norms. We never actually thought it was okay to assault women. We never thought that. But the norm was that we, the women kept quiet. The norm has changed. And now there's a lot of group shame among the men who now feel like, oh, what I used to be doing was inappropriate. That's, that's an example of group shame. And I'm not saying they're all actually a feeling like I should feel ashamed. Some of them are outraged that they, these norms changed under their feet and how yeah. dare it, that norm change. I was perfectly comfortable and now I'm a bad guy. <laughs> um, so that is, but it's a group, nor, a group shaming. And I, my theory is that it goes through the stages of shame similar to the way I laid them out. And I might be wrong about that. Mm -hmm. it's, I don't mind being wrong. I just, because I'm a mathematician, I'm trained to just be happy to be wrong. Um, I, 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 Without if, shame. If you can explain, yeah, it's actually one of the most one, one of those freeing things as a mathematician is that you say something and someone says you're wrong. And you're like, thanks for not like I won't waste my time on it. But like, it's useful even if it's wrong. I believe to understand group shame as an evolution through stages similar to the individual. Okay, we'll go for questions. So there is the mic and go the mic to that it. works now. Uh, I hope it works now. <laughs> it was very, uh, very interesting uh, here today, listening to uh, everybody. Uh, some of the things that we did not talk about today, what about uh, people like we, everybody knows uh, Martha Stewart, who was incarcerated for a period of time. She was shamed, and then she was released from jail, and Martha Stewart just picked up right from where she left off, and she's on TV, and she's selling her merchandise. And just recently, we have uh, Anthony Weiner, 
who was uh, in some sort of a halfway house for uh, pornography and all that. Now he's uh, was just uh, Anthony Weiner was released, and uh, he's thinking about going into politics again. So I'm just using a couple of extreme examples <laughs> that we did not talk about today. Thank you. Who wants to respond? Sounds like you're well, proposing banishment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, part of the part of the problem is that uh, uh, shame um, is, I think it fits with the, the, the change in, in empathy. And by the way, uh, a, a rules, manners, uh, we, we haven't gotten to, which would be a very important part of the discussion. Uh, the idea of letting it all hang out, uh, as opposed uh, to uh, rules governing our behavior. Uh, so you write a thank you note for dinner, uh, whether you liked it or not. And now that it would be called lying. Uh, and uh, so the whole issue and the change in, in social protecting the feelings of others have given way to, to be uh, authentic. And indeed, the election really hinged on the fact that even though he was a terrible man, he was at least authentic, whereas she uh, was inauthentic. Uh, and so is, uh, so the fact is that uh, uh, we're allowed, uh, we have no shame about being shamed, is in fact what's, what's occurring. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I just wanted to comment on individual versus institutional shame. You brought up the example of the Catholic Church and why hasn't the Pope felt more shame. Institutions make political and financial decisions. They can't be shamed the way individuals are. But my question is to the professional, I see some agreement here. My question is to the professional psychologists among you. Um, and this concerns the most prominent shamer, the shamer-in-chief. Uh, do you feel that this is more strategic and purposeful than he's given credit for? Or on the other end of the spectrum, does he suffer from a pathology? Look, 40, 45, 40 percent of the people believe that uh, he has done nothing wrong. That is to say, we're back to facts. Uh, uh, even though you can demonstrate that he says he hasn't said something, and you have a tape of him saying it, uh, uh, he would just call it fake news. So one of the things that narcissists can do is that they change the rules, the normative, uh, the normative behavior. So while on, you're having now uh, a men who did things that they shouldn't have done and now feel uh, a, a movement to get them to feel, there is also this movement of there's nothing to be ashamed about. Well, there's something, mean, there's you, something. you can make norms. You can go any way you want but, for them. You know, under or behind, uh, masked by his behaviors, which are defensive mechanisms, is toxic shame, yes. right? You, yeah. If you read anything about his upbringing, his background, he has massive 
shame, humiliation. And these are all, as narcissism almost always is, I have a paper that says defensive mechanism. He, def he avoids, he attacks, right? Those are his two. That's, well, this he, ties in nicely with what shame is I'm so sorry. intolerable to him. Absolutely. Yeah. That shame is norms. No. He changes facts, he changes no. norms. But you mentioned earlier. And he blames others. Yeah. You, both of you talked about no, the idea, the idea of... I don't think he's aware that he has... I don't think he'd ever admit or, or is aware that that's why he's doing it. So then it's a pathology. It's a pathology, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, both, exactly. It's a pathology. You yeah. both talked about anger as being a reaction to be accused, to be shamed by others, to respond with anger. And I think you very wisely, uh, Kathy especially, mentioned that in this uh, purposeless shaming... Uh, I think one of the reactions of the, the parties that are shamed is they get angry and unfortunately they get mobilized. This is what uh, this shame, shamer in chief relies on, that yes. if you try to shame me and I don't want to accept it, I'm going to get angry with you, how dare you try to shame me. And that mobilizes a lot of the, the populace. I think, okay, next question. So I just want to get back to, um, it's not my fault, first of all, my question, but to you would be um, to please elaborate on why uh, you stated that men usually uh, say it's not my fault more than women. But before you answer that, it, in terms of it's not my fault, I've always been under the impression that a person that cannot take criticism or it's not my fault they say that because they've been criticized quite a lot, either by their, their parents or... So I don't know if that has anything to do with it's not my fault, that defensive mechanism, but that goes into not being able to even take criticism. I didn't do it. It's not my fault. And it, it's, it's very pathological if you... So the question, though, really is why men more than women? Okay. Uh, understand why that's important. If you win the lottery, you don't feel proud. You feel very happy because it's a chance you didn't cause it. Although some people will say, I went to a particular store and I knew that that was. So they give themselves causality and they can feel pride because it's negotiable here. So uh, winning the lottery, uh, an event, uh, you don't uh, you, uh, you, most people do not feel proud of winning a lottery because it's chance. It has nothing to do with you causing it. So believing that you cause it or not cause it is a very good mechanism to move you around these self-conscious emotions. If it's not my fault, then I can feel anything I want that's appropriate. And, and so you can manipulate, it's not my fault, so I'll do some manipulation. Now, the sex difference. There are many explanations. I, um, there are data in which you can look at when parents are teaching children in the laboratory tasks to do, and the child doesn't succeed. What does the parent say? And it turns out that parents make these performance or global attributions more to girls than they do to boys. 
That is to say, when the child is supposed to be able to do a puzzle and the child can't do it, and you ask, you you listen to what the child says. Uh, uh, a parent could say on the extremes, "Oh, you're so stupid. Why don't you get that?" Parents say these things, or they could say, "It's a very hard uh, problem." Why don't you uh, try again and give them a strategy? And it turns out that giving strategies, rather than making global attributions, are more likely for mothers now to give this to the boy child than to give it to the girl child. Uh, why? I don't know why it is, but I can only tell you what we think may be going on. But let me give you another, and I really think it's another reason. Uh, I think girls are much more, that is the woman kind, are much more concerned about their bodies than men. That, I don't know how broad it is, I can say that in most cultures that I've been to, if it's a, for, a more formal occasion, the women are better dressed than the men. The only place that might not be true is is Italy. In India, certainly, my my I, oh, I, I the Maasai. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the men it's are, not always right, true. Right. It is not right. always true. But right. indeed, the attending to the body uh, is a necessity, given that uh, uh, menstruation, which uh, an adolescent starts with, you have to be concerned with your body. Men don't go don't have that concern. In the research in pre-adolescence, you ask boys, what do you feel about the fleshiness under your arm or the thickness of your thighs? And the nine-year-old boys, they don't have anything to say about it. They never thought about it. And nine-year-old girls are already uh, telling you, oh, I think this is too much. And so there is a concern for the body. So the question is, why is that? One solution women have said it, they're object, sexual objects for men, and so they become objectified. And that's a reasonable hypothesis. But an alternative one... But where's that? It's not my fault. Link. How's that linked to that? Okay. It's, it's if you attend more to yourself, mm -hmm. and that's where temperament would come in, if there's more information that you are deriving out of your body sense, that information is more likely to make you think about yourself and therefore more likely to move toward the attributions if something went wrong I cause it. Yeah, I have a but to comment just on your I question. I'd like, I, I'd like to add to this a little bit. Martha Stewart, was that your example? No. Whose example is that? Yeah, yeah Martha Stewart, she never would have been prosecuted if she were a man doing exactly what she did. Like it's it's the it's the expectations of society that villainized her in the first place. Good for her for going back to work. I, that's what I say. I would also like to keep an eye on the Trump officials that get blamed for their terrible behavior as Trump officials, like Kirsten Nielsen and Sarah Sanders. Um, what about all the guys? Mm -hmm. you, it, like we accuse women in uh, we shame women. It, it much more much more often and much much more than we ashamed men. And I say, I say that as a, as a person who's written journalistic essays for Bloomberg, I get unbelievable hate from the commenters as a woman. Just 
unbelievable. It is completely documented. So I'm just saying it is socialized to a large extent. And of course, one last thing, dieting. Guess who diets? Girls. Guess why? They're told to diet. It's by their parents. So it's, it's, not, it's very, very good data that this is socialized. The Justice Department doesn't like it when people lie to public officials. And Martha Stewart was not sent to jail because of the insider trading accusation. Insider trading itself is a very complicated area and it's gone through lots of changes. But when you lie, when you're being interrogated by the FBI, they don't look at your gender. That's like a fundamental principle for them, whether you like it or not. I don't like it. I, I don't like, I, I, I agree with you about Martha Stewart, good for you. And I think it was unfair to just nail her on the procedural thing. But they do that all the time and they do it to men and women. I have a somewhat different view than Mike. I would be really skeptical of a generalization about gender in this area because I think a really fundamental principle of action is the no premise that all human beings have is that there's a relationship between action and outcome. You know? I caused it. I swing an axe. Something happens. Everyday life is built on the fundamental premise of a relationship between action and outcome. And that's the default. That's where you start. If you're going to move away from it, there are special cases in which you might, you might have a conception of something, the world being simply a lottery. It's a horrible notion if you really think about it that way, because you're losing control of your life if it's that way. And the relationship of action and outcome has all sorts of manifestations for men and women. And I would bet you can find areas where men might be one way and women another and just the opposite in some other domain. But I'd really be surprised if the most fundamental premise was what, you're at, you and you, what you do has consequences and you're responsible for it. My, in my uh, limited experience, because it's only from within my office, it's not, uh, it's not based on extensive research, but in my experience, it, I do not see a distinction. But what I do see is that the harder the person is on themselves, the more they're tempted to say it's not my fault when they're confronted with something. Mm. The more the person is willing to accept that they have done something wrong, the less they're willing, to, they're, they're, they need to say, oh no, it's not my fault. Mm -hmm. That, that's, that's a complicated question because it involves all sorts of developmental issues. Yeah. yeah. I'm overcoming my public speaking shame by doing this. That's what I told him. Thank you. Good job. Thank you. Um, my question is, I've, I always thought of guilt as being really the, almost like the introjected parental figure telling us what to do, and shame more as being part of the death drive as aggression towards ourselves. So I think that, in my own opinion, to get over shame, we can sublimate that aggression outwards into more it's socially acceptable in positive ways. What are your views on that? I would recommend that everyone go back and see the movie Four Feathers done by Corda. And um, the movie Four Feathers done in the 1930s in which you were in a military family in England and they're going off to the Sudan to fight. And one of the buddies decides he's not going to go. And he, the four feathers are the feathers that you receive being accused of being a coward, in this case by his fiancée and his buddies. 
And the rest of the movie is about his attempt to do incredible things of courage to be accepted back into this, having been shamed so powerfully. And that seems to me is a kind of typification of how shame works in a society that has statuses, has clear goals, has notions of the good. And when you fall out of it and you are called on it, it's an incredibly powerful set of motivations that go on. And the movie is well worth seeing if you want to see, let's call it the pre-modern view of how this whole thing operates. Um, and it, it doesn't fit that definition. For me. A friend of mine last night told me, uh, which has some truth in it, that guilt is an afterthought. Mm-hmm. Guilt is an afterthought. Is that you commit the act and then you say, oh, I feel terrible about it. Right. It rarely stops you from committing the act. It yeah. seems to me shame is a basic, is one of the emotions we have. We have love, we have shame, we have all those things. So I don't think it has anything to do with that drive or anything. It's just an emotion that humans have, and I, I guess some animals it's have. I tend, I tend to think of guilt and regret um, as having some spatial connection, because the focus is on how to correct the wrong, whereas in shame, the self is um, attacked, thus very powerful. So um, um, I think that that definition, that distinction, is probably one from a behavioral point of view and also from a general theoretical point of view, that kind of distinction is worth having. But isn't guilt simply moral shame, immorality shame, plus fear, because guilt involves fear of punishment, too? Where, well, you know, I, I, I guess so. I mean, those are a lot of words. I'm not quite sure uh, what they mean. I think, in fact, that... It means that you've made you, moral transgression. There is a, a, a vast literature, of which I'm not much of a part of, which, in fact, looks at whether, when, it's around achievement, but it's very relevant, is uh, um, you can uh, look at your performance, um, or you can look at the task. And, and uh, uh, for example, uh, uh, Carol Dweck uh, has made a very big, um, a whole career based on this distinction. I can focus and say, gee, I'll give you a perfect example. You write a paper and you send the paper into a journal. These are the kind of activities I do. And back comes the paper and uh, uh, it's rejected and there's a whole set of criticisms. Uh, I can do one of two things, depending on uh, 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 what it elicits in me, this failure. I can look at what they criticized and focus upon that. This will cause me a set of actions to try to repair or save the paper. If in fact the result is a damaged self I put it in a drawer and I forget about it. And when you work with graduate students and and fellows in medicine, 
one of the things to try to teach them, and it is teachable, that's interesting, from a therapeutic point of view, is in fact, I don't want to hear about you what a lousy scientist you are. I want you to go home, and I want you to list each criticism separately and write some response. Do I have to do another analysis? Do I need to read more? Focusing them on the task gets them to stay in the game and try to correct the failure. If in turn you think you're a lousy scientist, you will want to forget it. One way of coping with that shame is to forget it. And so you put it in a drawer. And, and, and exactly what you said, and, and in fact, you want a mechanism that stops you in your tracks. It is sufficient that you can't do this except to great cost to your self-esteem, if you like. Whereas in guilt, you fundamentally want to repair it. And, um, and, and you can actually see it in behavior. You can see the, these children. But you want to repair it in shame, too. The no, example I gave of doing no, something no, no. inappropriate. You if, 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 you're, if you do something in a social context, it's inappropriate. No, and you don't repair you it. shame yourself. In fact, one of the and problems And you want to repair it. You want to go and say, I, you know, I'm so sorry. I behaved so, uh, you know, I don't know if it, it came over me. That's, so that's, re that's also reprofit. So okay, is. let's go to the next question. I'm also facing my public shame here. Yeah. Uh, but my question is something that hasn't been discussed here. Uh, so I read in this book that uh, shame is one of the main pillars of one of the pillars of loneliness. So what do you guys think about that? I just want to understand from your loneliness. loneliness. Yeah. You know, I, I'm going to jump in and, and tell you how I understand shame, and this is through a lot of reading. Um, it's not my definition, and I'm trying to remember the person's name whose book is from, but it's, it's this idea of a disintegration of self, that you basically have this connection with your caretaker when you're a child, and it's, it's a good feeling. And then at some point they are disappointed in you, they shame you, and it feels like you do not have a self. And you're so desperate to get back into that connection mm -hmm. um, that you would literally do anything. Mm -hmm. And if you can't get back into that connection, you feel completely floating, you feel disintegrated, like you do not have a connection to your mother or whoever. Um, and that, I mean, of course, that elicits loneliness. So I think there's a very strong connection with that definition of shame, which might, might, maybe isn't the only one, but that definition of shame is, is loneliness. It is, in fact, the definition of being alone, when you're disconnected from everything else. Some okay. feelings are shameful. Um, uh, and so, you can be ashamed of being guilty, but you can't be guilty about being ashamed. Uh, and you can be ashamed about being lonely. Now the question is, if you feel lonely, can you be ashamed? Thank uh, you. So, uh, clearly, if you are believed that you should be a, a part of the social group, there are people who, uh, interestingly, who don't have a lot of social interaction, much prefer to be on their computer than to go to a party. So um, that loneliness may not be shameful. 
because they don't have a value that they should be socially integrated. Okay. And Asperger is a perfect indication because men, part of the Asperger personality is in fact they're, they're interested in things more than people. Okay, last question. Hi, I am wondering about the relationship between shame and the stability of a society. Because it seems to me that in very, very stable societies, whether it's a family or a larger society like our nation, um, shame is sometimes weaponized when the society changes. And perhaps it's a function of fear of the change. Um, and shame is used whether to put down a racial group or women or to impose certain standards. These things really ramp up when the society is changing, really to maintain the stability of the society. So it's almost a political yeah. weapon. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to echo you that I think we can look at our society and see that norms are changing very, very quickly. Um, and, I, and I would even argue that people think they're changing faster than they actually are changing because we have this artificial sense of accomplishment on social media when it looks like in our tiny little corner of Facebook that we all agree that such and such is true. When in fact, it's a very small corner of Facebook. I think we actually are being misled by our intuitions around social norms. And we think things are changing faster. But that goes to your point, which is that it, if, if some people think the norm is now uh, you have to ask three times before having sex with someone and, they, you know, and other people think, no, you don't even have to ask, you know, it's not surprising that conflict emerges. And when conflict about what we thought we already knew about norms, that's, that is ripe for shame. That is what shame is for, right? Shame is for coercing people into the norm. So if... If they, if they got it wrong, actually 95% of people are getting it wrong. What the fuck is wrong with this, these people? You know, it's because we actually think we've accomplished more norm changing than we have. And that's what's happening right now. And we have, I think you made the point, one of the norms that we're seeing change is the idea of being authentic rather than factual, right? Or, or honest. That is itself a norm that is ripe for shaming because it's exactly the point. The point of that norm is that people who follow that norm, who are in that norm group, mm -hmm. are exactly the people that are going to be shamed by people who are like, no, we haven't agreed to that change in the norms, right? You are actually supposed to be an honest person, not mm -hmm. a shameless person. So there's, there's so much going on right now. It's, a, it's chaos, honestly, with respect to changing norms. Mm -hmm. When there's chaos with changing norms, there is an a uptick, if not an explosion of shame. Yeah. I you know, this is off the top of my head, but I think it makes sense to think about the balance between the private and the public in societies. And when you're thinking about social change, there needs to be some kind of balance between those two. The domain of the private is a way in which you can't be shamed because what you're doing with people who you're close to or are intimate with or you know trust you is not something you would necessarily do with anybody. And now what's happened is the anybodies of the world are in that private domain, exposing it. And now you, your reputation, your career is affected because of something you happen to say in private that someone was able to eavesdrop on or leak. 
So basically, our leaks, and this is with the irony of our free press, because our free press are a bunch of snoops. They're trying to dig into the private realm all the time. They're encouraging people to leak information, which would normally be in an insular area where you couldn't be shamed. And they're shaming all sorts of people. And I think the Me Too movement, in fact, has brought us back to the 17th century cyber stocks. That's why I use that notion. We have the stocks going all the time now. I don't think it's healthy for our society. And to the extent we continue to erode the private domain, it's an area where creativity can go on. Transgressive experimentation can play, take place in miniature. Some of that stuff is truly loathsome. Others ends up being creative stuff that then filters out more broadly into the society. I think you know, the guys are correct. Uh, and, and I think there's a commonality in, in, in that idea. But I think there's another thing. There is the idea of happiness. We haven't gotten to happiness. It was interesting that you brought it up as one of the best. Uh, I have to tell you the story. So my, uh, I think I mentioned my father was born in the 19th century. So, uh, I mean in the 20th century, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. And he believed that if you did something well, you would be happy. And uh, we now believe you, if you are happy, you will do something well. Uh, our focus has moved, which is part of the self-focus, on our happiness. So in, a, in, another, uh, in another round table, the discussion of happiness and they, uh, there are some wonderful books of how searching for happiness has made us miserable uh, um, uh, is, is really the theme. So um, not only are uh, some of the, the, uh, the changes in technology which support some of this. Namely, I can, I walk down, I live in the village. I walk down the streets and I'm a little old man and a big towering person is walking toward me reading their, uh, uh, reading their phone and I have to say, excuse me, or he's going to run me down. Uh, and uh, if we said, oh, well, we used to have people walk down the street reading books, that was not the case. People didn't walk down the street reading books, but what? <laughs> Making a joke. Yeah. So, so I think uh, there is a shift to this happiness, to this idea that the self uh, deserves certain things, and I think it's in part why there's a decline in in, in empathy and indeed a rise in narcissism. So. We have done, by the way, a roundtable on happiness, but thank you very much. Right. <laughs> we'll be happy to do it again. Okay. You promise me you won't be careful. Oh, oh. <laughs> yes.